This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 42 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking a little bit like Dennis the Menace, if we can see all of his red stripes, is Alan Edward Herbert Gray, very naughty as ever, our happy and handsome horticulturalist. And over in Cambridgeshire on this grey and rainy day, lighting up, lighting up our screens <laughs> with the most wonderful warm smiles is Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsson. I got it right this time. <laughs> Doesn't always happen, but that was beautifully delivered, Alan. And we are giddy, we are excited because we have got a guest we've been really looking forward to talking to. I mean, we look forward to talking to everybody, obviously, but um, we've been after Dan Cooper for a little bit, known as the frustrated gardener, and I follow your exploits on Instagram all the time, Dan. How are you? Welcome to Talking Dirty. I'm very well, and it, and it's not too bad here weather-wise. It's quite okay, actually. Um, we're in this, I'm in this funny little bit of England called Thanet, which just sticks out into the English Channel, and, and the weather just misses it sometimes. So um, we're okay, actually, today. Do you know it's what? lovely to be here. This is very exciting. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm excited to see this view, Dan, because I've heard so much about your garden room. I've seen lots of shots of it, but I've never got to see it from your Zoom camera. And it does look like you're sitting in a jungle. Yes, it, 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 it's always very pleasing to everyone else. What they don't realise is that I'm staring at a piece of plasterboard. Um, <laughs> because this, this room is essentially an unfinished part of my house, which um, I've been very tardy about finishing. And so it just got filled with plants. Um, in front of me, where I'm looking, apart from at your lovely faces, <laughs> is uh, is a piece of yeah green plasterboard, and beyond that is a, a bathroom that is yet to be. But um, yeah, but the plants are very happy here. It's um, it, particularly those that that don't like too much sunlight. So um, very good for begonias and and ferny things and gingers and stuff like that. Which and streptocarpus. I have got streptocarpus. Yes, it's Saxorum is just up here. Yeah, I can see it. Just sort Love of getting going. I spotted that because it's one of my favourites. In actual fact, I bought a couple the other day. I went off to. I, I had my second COVID jab on um, Sunday, and on Tuesday felt decidedly under par, mm. and so I didn't really feel like being social. So I took myself off, and somebody told me about a little nursery down in Suffolk, and I thought, well, I'll go and find this little nursery. Well. A fool in his money, they say, don't they? I know, you know, please take my credit card away. <laughs> I'll still find the cash if I want the plant. That's the trouble. <laughs> and uh, I bought some uh, Streptocarpus saxorum, having lost it. I put mine in the garden last year and forgot to dig it up, but I've got it again, so it's marvellous. I mean, it's really super easy to propagate as well. It's like a yeah. weed. I, do you know, I first saw I used to have to go to a beautiful... Um, part of Germany, just on the border with uh, the Netherlands, and, and stayed in this very dreamy um, castle. 
and all of their window boxes were full of only Streptocarpus saxorum. And I, I had no idea that it was, you know, could be used as a sort of bedding plant, basically. Mm. Um, but it look, just looked so pretty. So I've, I've always grown it after, after that. And there, there is a white one as well, which um, Dibley's have, I think if we're allowed to mention names. Oh, no, mention away. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, you've just given me an idea for an urn that I do in the garden here for this summer. And I normally do it in the cliche silver and white combination. And um, I just suddenly thought, now I know where I can buy Saxorum from, I'm going to use that as well. So another trip to this nursery. Yeah. Lovely when you find a nice nursery though, isn't it? Because they, they are few and far between, well, particularly ones that you've not heard of. So um, it's always a bit of a treat, I think, isn't it? Yes, yes. Now, the watch house is, um, well, it seems to be a super stylish house and uh, a super stylish garden, but it is amazing, I think, how much you fit in. Do you know, kind of square footage wise or size wise, exactly what kind of a, a garden space you are able to, uh, to experiment with, Dan? Yes, I, I think I do. I, I'm glad you didn't ask me for metres because that would have thrown me completely. But um, the, the jungle garden, so the bit that sort of faces east towards the sea, that's 20 foot by 30 foot. And then the little bit that's just out of these doors here is 20 foot by 20 foot. So tiny, you know, uh, completely urban, so surrounded by other buildings, which... Um, you know, has its own challenges, um, but no, really very small, but probably, you know, not uncommon to what a lot of people would would actually have uh, at home as well. So it's just, um, I cram a lot in, I think. You certainly do. And I suppose much like a couple of weeks back when we visited Richard Hobbs, having an allotment as well becomes a real saving grace in that situation. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, the whole frustrated gardener thing stems from from lack of space and lack of time, really. And um, of course, being blessed with quite a lot more time as a result of uh, lockdown and not having to commute to London every day and all of that. But uh, the space thing has only really been alleviated by uh, having the allotment, which is which is great. We feel very lucky because we got it at a time when the waiting list was sort of five or six months. And now I think it's in excess of three years. So um, got it just at the right time, really. And, and you trial, you know, say you want to put tulips in the garden, you actually trial them at the allotment before they, I suppose, earn their place in your special smaller areas. That's right. I mean, I, I let's be clear, I am a kleptomaniac when it comes <laughs> to plants. It, it's, um, I, I don't think that's uncommon either in the gardening community, but it's, um, you know, I, there, there are many rules that I should follow that I probably don't. But um, yes, the allotment's a great opportunity, I guess, to just assess. I mean, particularly with something like tulips, it's quite, um, it's very, very hard sometimes to tell what colour they're actually going to be. I mean, catalogues and websites are, are rarely very accurate, are they, in their and I'm sure it's not deliberate, but... Um, no, you know, I mean, the whole thing is the, the quality of the picture, the exposure on the day, the light and everything else. And you're absolutely right. You know, the one thing you cannot beat is going to a visiting gardens at tulip time. 
or London Parks for that matter, because London Parks are a great source of inspiration, I think, when you're seeing, if you're comparing one tulip against another, because, I mean, they, they do splurge a bit on their on their tulips and uh, we can actually, I've got one in the garden, I haven't got a clue what it is. I planted it in January in actual fact. It's just coming out and it's a, it's a, it's a yellow tulip, but it's got the most incredible shaped flowers that, that kind of curl around the edges and they're all crinkled up. It's not a disease, I, <laughs> I can tell you that, but it, it's, it's, I mean, I think yellow tulips, quite honestly, boiled eggs on stick tulips, they're boring. Just boring. You want something with a bit of a twist, a bit of a curl, a bit of a personality, I guess. Yes. I mean, I I, I do quite like the sort of weird and wonderful to a, to a point. I have I have actually bought in. I went out this morning. We had rain. We had rain last night. It was like a miracle. But um, but of course, all the things that I planned to pick for this morning were then soaking wet. But they're they're splendid and dry again now. But. Um, yeah, I do. I, I like to see what these sort of more unusual tulips are like, and then if they are attractively unusual, then they um, they get a place in the garden. But we've got one up at the allotment called Labrador, which is um, a very um, sort of beautiful, sort of conquery, ebony, dark one. But it's got these very fringed edges to it, and um, that's that's really lovely because it's just a little bit, you know. Just a little bit of extra interest to look at, I guess. But I, th I've, I mean, we we've been amazed this year at how many quite well-known tulip varieties, you know, not not brand new ones, um, grown alongside one another. Are you know, there's not much to tell between them, um, but at least it does mean that you can sort of discount one or the other and then save yourself and and try something else. But I, it's. It's been a, a funny year, so I think um, you'd probably need to grow them all again to check whether it was just um, the strange weather, dry, cold weather we've been having that means that they've flowered at certain times or whether it's that is in their nature. But yes, yeah, a bit of fun and it's a bit of um, excess, you know, extra space to, to be experimental, I suppose. It's also an extra space where you can do a bit of composting, for instance. I mean, where do you get, I'm just th th thinking 20 by 30 and 20 by 20, where the hell do you put your rubbish? Where, you know, where, where do you get? <laughs> well, until, until, I mean, until we had the allotment, that was a big problem because um, as I expect we'll come on to at some point, everything here is, is in a pot pretty much. So I'm quite religious about sort of changing the compost regularly um, for obvious reasons, mainly vine weevils. But, you know, where to put all of that is it was a real challenge for, for years. And of course, now we have the allotment, all the compost goes on the beds and all the green stuff goes in the compost heap. But before that, it was just a case of sort of getting rid of it at the tip and things like that, which, it, you know, it's not, not the way you'd like to do it, but waste it's a waste i, I was just sort of yeah. thinking i was just wondering whether the, ver the roadside verges around and uh, close to your home were not were not some of the best producers of wonderful wildflowers if you like it's fascinating to see what comes up on the allotment though i mean we things that i i haven't actually succeeded in growing from seed deliberately 
appear. So I have the most exotic soil. I mean, whoever gets the allotment after us is going to have echiums, geranium madarensi, lilies, all sorts of things sprouting up. I had I had decotianas coming up all over the place last year, and I don't even remember growing any of those. So. Um... <laughs> I'm torn about what to talk about next, but you did mention you'd picked some show and tell that had been sort yes. of drying out. So maybe we should do some show and tell next because I'm desperate to see what you brought to the party. Well, I'm surrounded. Would you would you like daffodils or tulips first? <laughs> what should we start well, with, Alan? We've been uh, we've been talking about tulips, so let's carry on with the tulip theme before we All go right, to. I'm going to see if I can do this without tipping water over myself or breaking a vase. So here we are. We've got some tulips. So just about see me. So um, my normal colours are, are, I sort of like the oranges and the plums and all the sort of flamey colours. Um, so this, this is a bit of a favourite. This, this is Lasting Love, this one. It, it looks very dark on camera. It's a little bit more red than that. But it is, it's a very, very neat tulip. It doesn't get too tall. And the flowers do last a really long time. So it's one of the later ones, but it's, it's, particularly nice and I have been um it's right in front of my face it's not very well orchestrated uh, it's probably better looking at the tulip than looking at me but um have been trying to work out what on earth to put with this um I don't know if, if you saw I put it on Instagram but what on earth one one does with this um dark dimension hyacinth which is I think it. I think if there was ever a marmite flower, this this might yeah, be. It. That's it. I, I don't like it. <laughs> I was I was given these, so um, I have grown them, and the the bulbs were magnificent. So each bulb has produced two of these whopping great um, flowers. But honestly, that is the must be the, one of the most difficult colours to deal with in the garden I, I I've ever come across. It doesn't really. It's like a void. So it just looks like it's a black hole. You know, it, it sort of disappears, really. So I don't know. Um, I shall look after them, but they may they may uh, end up at the allotment <laughs> as sort of edging or something. If you if if you've got space, you could try growing them through a sea of grey foliage, like Stachys lanata, yeah, lanata or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or any really any sort of kind of grey foliage that make them show up a bit, but I do find the fact that they are so shiny almost looks to me as if they're sort of kind of going over a bit, going up a bit. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and they're such a bulk, aren't they? There's nothing very yes. delicate about those. Don't the other thing, I, the other thing I was just going to say to you, Dan, is that those if you keep those bulbs and you do look after them in consequent years, um, they will be better because the flowers will get less huge because they've obviously been fed on whatever they've been fed on to get those enormous flower spikes, yeah. which come up and then immediately do that. Um, they flop. So, I mean, they're no good in the garden at that size. So they'll probably be better when the flowers are smaller. Well, that's the only reason they, they're in at all is because those were victims of the rain. So that is mm. proof of what you just said. They're not, um, mm. they're not really that garden worthy, are they? But, you no. know, a thing, some, something to try. A conversation piece. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, this is this is continental. This um, 
this one. And I really, really like this one. It's got lovely sort of undertones to it, like almost like someone sort of painted the dark on top of something metallic. I don't know how easy that is to see. And I know lots of people grow Queen of Night and things like that, but I think that's particularly lovely. And I like it with, so this is this is my um, sexy tulip of the year. I don't know if, if that's, that's the thing, but um, this is like the Alexis Carrington Colby of uh, the tulip world. It's, it's a sort of very, very 80s, lipstick pink and it's it's like um shot silk i don't know how easy it is to see but that's called attila graffiti and i i quite like those two together i think if you can see them together yeah. um but i do like those kind of color combinations strong strong colors and they flower at the same time which is which is useful I don't know what you think. Do you like this one or is that just two? Yeah, I do, I do. And I, I like the way that it picks out the the kind of shine. There's a, a dark red shine in the in the in the um in the middle of the petal on continental. Yes, yeah, it's nice. And then um I don't know if you tried this one, Alan, but I I this is this is just totally me and I've I've picked two just to show how it um Developed. So this is Slava. I think it's Slava. Is, is that how you Slava. pronounce it? It's, it's got a W in it rather than a B. But um, yeah, I would say Slava, but I mean, I don't know whether I'm right or, or whether you are. So it doesn't yeah. matter. You say Slava and I'll say Slava. <laughs> <laughs> that one. Um, but I think I think this is probably a very me um, tulip with the two with the two colours in in the same um, flower, and it sort of starts off a little bit more demure, and then then the borders increase. But um, big fan of that one. Um, That's fun. Doesn't it? I planted it completely. Uh, got sent by accident. This isn't what I ordered. So it's in in these pots, all full of sort of pink tulips, and then this one is is looking not very nice um then of course now this interestingly th these got really knocked about this is exotic emperor of course which i'm sure um lots of people are, are familiar with but i just i just love its craziness it's like <laughs> a ascot hat isn't it All sort of extra bits coming off it but um these sort of things do do please me i have to say just because they are so crazy I don't know, yeah. exotic emperor fan or? Yes, I am. I mean, I love any, I love all tulips really that are slightly different. I mean, um, the, you know, they've got something about them and that has those sort of green horn-like stripes on the petals, which I think is absolutely lovely and it relieves the boredom. I mean, I love, I love parrot tulips, but unfortunately parrot tulips, they don't stand up to the weather terribly well. Um, well, this last weekend we had um, horrendous win winds on, um, Sunday yeah. or Monday, remember, but anyway, um, and it completely bashed them about and they're all sort of floppy and hanging their heads now. And they look horrible. But if we get a spell of good weather, parrot tulips are my absolute favourite. They're, they're just so bizarre, I guess. I find I find Rococo very weather resistant. I don't know if you've tried that one. It grows very short here. So perhaps it was, that's it was a red and green one. Yes, and when it's yeah. got everything going on, really, it's like a well, like a parrot, but of course, yeah, but, um, <laughs> it kind of the colours change as the as the flower ages. Yes, I think, yeah, do. no, that, that's a good one, actually. That's a good one. I remember that because I do remember it being um, looking down and seeing in a big pot mm. amongst all the others, but it was in there, not out with it with them. If you see what I mean, yeah. 
then I thought I thought I better bring something tasteful in, and I haven't done a very good job of it actually because you can't see the foliage. But this one's called Hoco Loco, and it it's sort of I think you would call it nude, um, if if I can say that word on your podcast. <laughs> um, but what's so lovely about this is that it, it has almost silvery foliage, and that you can't really see it. But it's because I look, was looking at it this morning, trying to work out why it looks so sort of silvery, and it's because there's lots of very fine hairs on the surface of the leaves. So I, if you were going for a really tasteful garden, like you were saying, Alan, you know, you had a lot of sort of Mediterranean silvery colours. This, yeah. this would be this would be very sophisticated, which yeah. is not a word that's often been associated with me. But um, it, it it would be very nice. And then the last one is more in the interesting camp. I'm dripping all over myself here. So this is um, design impression, which um, which has the variegated leaves. Yeah. It's sort of hostery hostery like when it's coming up. And of course, the flowers do have a bit of a, a sort of, I guess, what would you call that sort of tangerine feathering on them, as well as being um, that sort of baby pink inside. But um, I'm, I'm quite fond of that one. And, and you know, the, when they come up and they're, they're late, they're a real treat, aren't they? Yeah, um, exactly. It was feel very blessed to have them when they come up like that. Just, just how much water have you managed to get over your body showing us the tulips, Dan? <laughs> it's all right. It's a, I'll drink I also like that you brought a nude tulip to the Talking Dirty podcast. That feels very apt. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that is not a colour I would choose deliberately. And that, that if, you know, in the catalogue of that particular bulb merchant, that did not look that colour. But, you know, it's a pleasant surprise. I would never have ordered it otherwise. I always get one or two things that I didn't order. I've actually got a, a, a daffodil here, which is supposed to be Hawera. I think that does have a W and not a B. Um, <laughs> and that is, it is definitely not, not Hawera, but it's it's really lovely. So I, I'll I'll get my um, scamps catalogue out and try and work out what it actually is. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I, it, it, it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, it, it does matter when you've got a lovely composed colour scheme, but then you just pick them all and have them indoors instead. So it's well, that's, what, that's what you do. We had, you know, tulips have this habit that they sometimes put down a dropper bulb from the bulb themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll put a kind of rhizometer shoot out and go down underneath the bulb, perhaps another six or eight inches even deeper into the soil. So that when you take your tulips up and you put the new ones in for next year, you suddenly get last year's tulips coming up, the odd ones. And we had um, a very red scheme, I think, a couple of years ago. And I had to go through them the other day and pick all the red ones out because they weren't in this year's scheme. And so we had a lovely big bunch of bright red tulips on the morning room table here, um, courtesy of the fact that um, they'd been, been dropping. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, that's, you know winning both ways there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a bit of a bonus. I do yeah. remember when I first, probably thought one of my first ever tulip orders, and I was so excited. I absolutely adore orange. So I'd ordered, I don't know if it was Cairo or Princess Irene or something that was going to be really fabulous and fiery. And um, I didn't get that. I got the most insipid, dirty knicker pink, pale, <laughs> pasty, just loads of this pink tulip. And the most galling thing about it is it must be the best doer. It must be the most perennial 
every year it comes back. Fortunately, it was my mum's garden, so she's stuck with them now. I don't have to look at them anymore. But every year they just come back so reliably and um, and you just can't get rid of them. And then you have to sort of stop presenting them because actually they're, they're just performing for you every year, even though they weren't remotely what I wanted. Well, Queen of Night does that too quite a lot. She, 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 she's a, a, what they say, a good doer in the garden. She will keep coming back. But that, that, she doesn't matter quite so much because she doesn't clash with anything <laughs> in particular. She's just there doing, being dark and moody in the background, which is absolutely fine. Last year, I managed to have five of the wrong dahlia, but all the same wrong dahlia. So I, I ordered Mel's orange marmalade from five different places. And I got five fantasy two caps, which if you look that one up, is um, probably deserving of the name, but um, it's not orange and <laughs> you can have too much of it. So, um, but, but definitely with dahlias, it does seem to be that murky pink is a, a colour you quite often get if you get the wrong dahlia as well. Yeah. Or you can get, you can be really shocked and you can get a daily, which I always think should be said in an, uh, an Australian accent, the name should be, if you can say in an Australian accent, I will attempt it. It's going to be bad, but never mind. But she <laughs> is a cactus dahlia and she is kind of red and yellow with bits of orange in there and all the rest of it. And her name is Lady Darlene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I, I do think dahlia hybridizes are on something though, don't you? Because the the names are getting more and more crazy. Um, yeah, they are. But I mean, you know, one of the things that I do here, Dan, is I always raise a few dahlias from self-sown seed. Not huge numbers because we don't have the space, but um, but you know, twenty to fifty plants, and we just line them out somewhere. And if there's a good one, we keep it. And if they, you know, nine times out of ten, you don't want to keep them because they're not good enough. <laughs> Um, but sometimes there is a rather nice one. There's a very nice single black one, which really is very dark red, of course. Um, but sometimes the way the singles curve their petals at the tips or something will make it stand yeah. out as, as opposed to just the plain ones. So it's always worth doing, I think. You're going to have to start giving them crazy names. So you're in with all of the dahlia breeders and their exciting naming. I want to be out with the dahlia breeders. <laughs> I want to be, I want my names to stand out. I don't want... <laughs> I don't want to do Lady Darlene. <laughs> I do also love the man with 32 acres telling the man with a, a tiny urban garden that he doesn't have enough space. <laughs> well, I you was, know what? I, I was mean. letting that one go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, we've had wonderful tulip show and tell, but we also were promised some narcissi, which are lurking somewhere off screen. So what else have you got, Dan? <laughs> well, again, I mean, where, where I am, I mean, similarly to Alan, not far from the coast, in fact, you know, very, very close in my case, and uh, on the east side. Um, so daffodils are normally a sort of distant memory, really, in my garden by now, but I've got more out now than at any time um, so far this season, which is just mad and, and it probably is a little bit to do with which varieties I chose to grow this year but also just I, I think uh, a sign of how cold it's been but I, I picked a few of the ones that I like um, 
this one here being an, an exception to my rule, because I, I loathe the split Corolla ones <laughs> formally. I think they're a, an aberration too far, really. Um, but this one's called Lemon Beauty. I don't, it, looks, it looks a tiny bit over overexposed, but it's sort of like, um, just reminds me of a lemon meringue pie. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very, very pretty daffodil, I think. Its only drawback being that it's got sort of hellebore-like tendencies in that it, it nods downwards very, very pronouncedly, if that's a word. So I, I was saying to uh, the bow the other day that this, this is one that you would need to plant on top of like a Cornish hedge or something like that so that you could get a really good view of it from sort of lower down. But, but it's, it's absolutely beautiful, I, I think. Sort of like lemon curd swirled through cream or something like that. Pretty. Split Corona Narcissi, we grew one this year um, in pops, which was exceedingly nice in actual fact. And I like that, Dan, I mean, I don't really like them. They are a bit of an abhorrent, um, I think if the, if the problem with them is if the middles are too big or they're different colors, it's like the flowers turn inside out and it's showing you its, its insides, its internal <laughs> organs. But we grew one, which was basically a daffodil with a yellow split trumpet laid flat back against these, these outer petals. Um, and it was called banana daiquiri. And that actually looked nice because it was odd. It, it did look quite exotic and quite orchid-like, um, but it fitted in very well with our scheme, which was really just yellow and cream. Um, cream wallflowers and these yellow uh, banana daiquiri followed by cream and yeah, yellow tulips. I, I believe banana daiquiri is probably Lady Darling's drink of choice, is it not? <laughs> Well, there's no flies on you, mate, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, I like it. <laughs> anyway, right. So, um, <laughs> so this is, um, this one's Salome. Yeah. But it's, it's really fascinating because it opens with a very, very sort of um, bright lemon yellow trumpet. Um, and then it slowly sort of goes this beautiful sort of soft peachy colour. So they first started coming out and I thought, oh God, I've mixed two varieties together in that pot because they look so different between when they are just coming out and when they're starting to fade. But quite subtle that one. I, I like that one very much. And, and then if you want a tinier version, this one's Cotinga. Uh, again, you can you can really see with this one that it has that downward facing habit. So, and you have to be quite careful with this one because if you lift the head up to get a close look, and um, they actually snap. So, it's one that you you want to be growing, you know, a little bit higher up if you can. But um, very demure little thing, which I thought was nice. And for your for your troughs, Alan, because I know you were talking about those last week, weren't you? But um, yep. sun disc is oh, is just yeah. coming out. That's a tiny little thing, um, yep. but really nice. I, I just I just like these sort of hangers on that, that appear at the end because they're they're like like yeah we want to keep going. But very very cute. This this one I, I'm a bit of a um, I love a bargain, and our local garden centre was just selling pots filled with unnamed bulbs right at the end of the season. And I just bought these and thought, well, what the hell, let's see. But um, really pretty, obviously sun disc, I think. Um, 
And then the sophisticated one, because uh, I felt I should have one. This one's Misty Glen. And um, the, the trumpet is almost like a greyish. I mean, if Farron Ball designed a, a daffodil, this, this would be the one, because the, the middle of it is, um, is a beautiful sort of greenish grey. Um, it definitely looks like a designer designed this one, but it, it, it's, it's a really nice late tulip. And then before I go on about this too long, this is, this is my, my Hawera substitute, which is, which is very jolly um, and very, very yellow, but, but nice. I'll put them down now. <laughs> They're wonderful. What I find interesting is my other half, who's not a gardener, but is very good at kind of being dragged around gardens and going to the garden centre and nurseries and things a lot. And he can never get over the fact that I like really showy flowers when it comes to dahlias or tulips or, well, anything really big and bold and probably a bit brash. But daffodils, I go very much for, for that vase that you've just produced, much more demure and paler and probably, you know, not quite so ostentatious, and it seems you you go down a similar route. Yes, I think so. Maybe I I don't know. There's something about tulips, the the sort of honesty of a tulip. I've just, uh, sorry, tulip daffodils, that I don't feel they should be messed around with too much. Um, I've just got the new book that's out, a, well, newish book out about daffodils, which is really fascinating. Going into all of the um, the sort of history of their breeding and um you know the, the the people who really sort of progressed them through to the um you know the 70s when they were a, a serious agricultural crop and we actually down in Cornwall at Rosewall and they um they spent a lot of time and money developing daffodils as a, a sort of commercial crop and that's when we got the the Carltons and the, the sort of great mm. big strong burly um daffodils that would that would make it to market in in good shape and then I think now people are sort of going back to a more naturalistic view of them but um they, yeah. the most extraordinary history uh daffodils have got you mentioned scamps catalogue a little while ago and I think if you look in there you will see there's a, a historic section of daffodils and narcissi which are referred to I think very charmingly as old ladies <laughs> <laughs> some of them, come the, you know, some of them come from the 1800s, 1900s to early 20th century, um, but they they have about them a charm, and I can speak from experience in that lots of them, were, which were probably 19, late 19th, early 20th century, and they probably were grown as crops, as you say, uh, for for the flower, flower trade. They actually are much daintier than, shall we say, Carlton, because Carlton was a big strident butch looking thing. Um, but they're much daintier than that, but they still have that flower power and they make up like the very devil itself. I mean, you know, you plant one bulb and you'll have two flowers on from that one double bulb or something. And then five years time, you'll probably get 10 flowers from it. it, it they are that generous, if you like. And I think they have about them a certain charm. They're not too tall. They're not too heavy. They will take the weather, which I think is an important thing in our gardens today. Yeah, I am. Um... We've got a, a church yard near near to us, and you, I, uh, no, I didn't do anything very scientific, but um, we went up there this spring, and you can virtually date the tulip variety to the date of the grave. Sounds a bit morbid, doesn't it? But we actually, I actually found one. Are oh, you talking tulips now or narcissi? 
We're talking Narcissi. <laughs> well, was I saying the wrong thing again? Yes. Um, see, you, this is water, I promise. Um, but, uh, but no, so you could, you could um, date the Narcissi almost to, to the, to the, time that the the, the, you know, the grave was put in place and so we so we managed to by that means we managed to work out that this particularly uh, lovely daffodil we managed to find out what it was by by looking at that particular time period which I think was around sort of 1927 um, and found that that is roughly when that daffodil was first introduced into horticulture. So um, they're, they're very interesting. Hedgerows and graveyards are a great place for uh, daffodil spotting. They are now, but they won't be in the future because how many people do you know today that actually plant bulbs on graves? I don't personally know of anybody. I mean, when I was a small boy, my grandmother and I used to go on our bicycles to the local um, churchyard um, having picked flowers at her house in the morning and do the graves, not just for our relatives, but, you know, she had friends who lived close by that perhaps they were disabled and couldn't get to the churchyard. So we'd do their, their graves as well. And we used to each have a little pair of miniature shears for clipping the grass on the graves as well. It was, it was a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing. I, I hated it as a child because, you know, you were told we've got to go and do the graves. <laughs> and they want to do that. But, you know, it's a lovely memory now to look back on um, and something that is not done anymore. And I don't think that we'll be dating daffodils or our grandchildren will be dating daffodils like we can today. No, you're right. I mean, my, my grandmother, was, my, my, my heritage is Cornish, so hence I, I'm probably the... Uh, passion for daffodils and, and all things sort of tropical and tender really but um, no my grandmother was absolutely fastidious in the same way about the upkeep of, of graves and, mm. um, and, 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 and and indeed as you say not not just for the family but um, friends and we used to I, I remember same as you changing the blooming water and traipsing <laughs> backwards and forwards with anyway yes <laughs> you mentioned there the the latest sort of da newish daffodil book you are really hot on your horticultural literary releases as well you're always sort of doing book reviews and keeping an eye across that I don't know how you have time for all of this Dan no people always say say that but um I don't know somehow I mean it I, I am this is my passion, I guess. So you just find time, don't you, for things that you're passionate about. So I, I'm, I'm just as bad with books as I am with plants. And, and although there's a slight sort of winter summer difference, I do spend a lot more money on books in the winter and, and less in the summer, but it, it's still not good. I mean, if, if I, no one has a bank manager these days, do they? But if, if I had one, I think they would have you know, left me for dead some time ago. But um, yeah, no, I do, I do like to keep up with what books are coming out. I mean, the, the, on the surface, it can sometimes see very, seem very repetitive um, because there, there are a lot of people who write books on pretty much the same subject. But, but then th there are some absolute gems that come out. I mean, this Daffodil book is, um, and I've got a few, you know, that there's quite, it's, you know, quite a different angle. Is clearly amazingly well researched. So, um, yeah, the great things about books is that we never stop ever learning things. And I liken gardening books to 
perhaps to recipe books. And if there's three good recipes in a recipe book, it's worth the money. If, if the gardening book gives me three new plants or three ideas or three somethings, then it's worth the money because it's made me think in it. My brain goes off at a tangent and thinks in another direction. That can only be good. What's also extraordinary, Alan, I think, is, you know, I'm not I'm not a technophobe in, in any way, but the, the depth of information that you get from a book, whether it's new or old, it, there is no way that that is equaled on the internet and right. um i don't i don't know what it is you know i don't think people have the attention span on the on the internet probably um, probably what it is is it, it it's it's too too impersonal um on the internet i think i mean if you take some of our greatest garden writers my hero has always been christopher lloyd but you take the his use of the english language his turn of phrase um, you won't find anything like that on the internet. And, and you'll get the people's personality coming through. Beth Chateau, her personality came through. You can tell from reading her books that she's a school teacher, as you could from when, when she spoke to you. I mean, however well you knew her, and I knew her well, um, you know, you could still tell that she was a school teacher, which is fascinating. Yeah. And you can, and you can also tell if you can relate to that person you kind of think well okay if they thought that then I would probably think that too I, I, I've just got another uh, Beverly Nichols um, book on on eBay and I read it and I, I, I sit there thinking oh my god this is probably what I sound like um, <laughs> it, I, I think I'm probably him reincarnated a, a few years later because um, I, I probably acquired some of his, um, <laughs> but I, I do love it. I can remember there's a book that I've got somewhere in the house here. Of, he was growing um, regale lilies, or regale lilies, call them what you will, and he grew masses of them and loaded them up into the car to bring them up to London. And I mean, the hilarity of him describing packing this car up, being flooded with this wonderful scent and everything else. I mean, it was pure Beverly, Beverly Nichols. You just couldn't get away from it. It was, it was such such fun yes and he's just I, I think it was garden open tomorrow that I, I read before this one and his description of um being asked to you know everyone asks you to design their garden if you're you know and and then he described what what the actual outcome of those discussions always was was that basically no one really wanted you to design their garden they wanted what they wanted and um, I think he was marched out of someone's house in Surbiton at some stage because he basically made suggestions that were, they were appalled by. So um, <laughs> he was sort of asked to leave by the lady of the house. <laughs> but, you, you know, these sort of things, I mean, I, people don't write like that anymore, do they anyway? But um, hilarious, hilarious stuff. Though, of course, I mean, you, you've not necessarily got tons of books to your names, but you've got, what, 10 years of your Frustrated Gardener blog to your name with some pretty great writing on it. I don't know how that happened, really. <laughs> I, um, as you know, I like to experiment with things. I think I was, I was on holiday in, in June and it was the Olympic year, I think. And I thought, oh, I don't know what blogging is. I, you know, someone had said something and I thought, well, I don't know what, I don't know what a blog is. So I thought, well, I'll have a look. And then I tried, I thought, well, I'll, I'll maybe have a go at writing a post and see what this is all about. And of course that sort of started it off. And 
you know, at the, at the time I was, I don't know, I was very, um, you know, I was feeling quite disconnected, I think, from my love of plants. And, and my work was very all absorbing and I really wanted to find a way to um, reconnect a bit and, and not lose, you know, what I'd learned and things like that. And the, the blogs that helped me, I think, by pushing me into researching things and and looking at things a bit more more deeply and, and then yeah it just went on and on I, I really don't know how that that happened but um you know it's one of those things you have to do it for yourself because otherwise it would just become an absolute chore um, and I probably don't write it as much as I I used to but I I, I do enjoy it and I do enjoy the sort of connection you get with the people who read it as well. It, it's, it's a nice thing to do. Mm. It's yeah. that, that lovely kind of very generous, encouraging gardening community that you then sort of become part of. And, and I suppose in some respects, a bit like with this podcast, you get so much inspiration back as well. I mean, I in particular learn so much every week doing this. And, and even Alan, who, you know, knows so much already. Um, he's, uh, he's so old. <laughs> but there is always stuff to learn. And there are so many people who are keen to share in the, the kind of online gardening community, be it blogging or Instagram or podcasting, Twitter, whatever it might be. I hear these tales of people. I mean, of course, Beverly Nichols was great at telling tales of people who were quite rude um, when his garden was open. But I, I don't know whether I'm just very lucky, but I, I never experienced this side of um, of gardening folk, really, because whether, whether the garden's open or whatever it is, people just always seem to be terribly kind um, and generous. So, so hopefully my luck doesn't run out at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just illustrate a very, very quick point? Sometimes these things happen. There was a, a lady looking at my brugmantis here in the garden one day, and she said, no, oh, do you take them in? And I said, yes. Oh, we leave ours out, you know. So I said, oh, do, you, do you? And she said, yes. I said, well, you've left them out. How are they doing? She said, well, they haven't flowered yet. This was in October. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, Alan, might, you might get your fair share of people who are quite vocal about things they, they don't approve of. I don't, care. Yes, I don't care anymore. I don't mind, you see, because I've long since... I don't take offence at other people's remarks because we should not all like the same things. Everybody has an opinion. And if they don't like my garden, they don't have to look at it. I mean, I don't ask them or force them to come and look at it. If they don't want to and I never see them again, why should I care? <laughs> <laughs> Judging by the spectacle of your Brugmansias, which I don't think I have, I have never actually seen them in person, but I've seen many pictures of them. I would, I would, I would imagine that you have pretty good grip on how to grow them because um, they are extraordinary. Well, I've, learned, I've learned through trial and error, you know, and experience really. Um, Granny always grew them at home. She had the, she had a pot outside her, the back door of her cottage with a brugmantia in it and it would be probably a metre tall, including the pot. And we'd just look at these big bells hanging there and they'd come in flushes and all the rest of it. Then I went on my first holiday abroad and we went somewhere in Spain and I saw them growing as trees. And I thought, that's how I want to grow them. But could, of course, we can't because they're not hardy. But I could do it by elevating them into a container, much as you were talking about with your narcissos, Dan. But, you know, ele elevate them up so that you can actually look up into their trumpets. And that was really how I tr 
got to growing bug mantids on the scale that I do. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, just another form of pruning and manipulation. I mean, when we take them up, we root prune them, we top prune them, we squeeze them into the greenhouse. They look as if they're going to die. They never do. They come back. And I always tell people, remember a plant. It doesn't want to die. It always wants to live. I mean, they, they are not, they're not pretty beasts, are they? Mine are, mine are just sort of, um, just sort of showing some leaf now, but I'm, I'm very unkind to them through, through the winter. They don't even get very much light. They go in, in the garage. Um, but then, you know, in a, in a few months time, that'll all be forgotten, won't it? And there'll be... Um, yes, exactly. The only one I can keep outside all winter, and I only put it away for one night, was um, Sanguinea. And that one, um, but it, I mean, it is in a pot and, and it's in shelter. I thought you were going to say that because I've been to, um, I've got friends that live on Guernsey and sometimes been over there um, December and January. And because Sanguinea, in both its red and its cream form, um, they're flowering away as shrubs in the garden, what, a metre and a half tall and, and across. And I, I mean, it was mind boggling when I first saw it. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't try to keep them outside here because I don't think they would, they would survive. And I don't want to look at, um, you know, bananas in their pajamas and things throughout the week and all of that. So I don't want <laughs> anything anymore. It's, it's got to fend for itself, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I'm very much the same. I can't be bothered with rat. I mean, it either survives or it, so it either comes indoors or yeah. it takes its chances, but I can't be bothered with, with things that sort of mummified. Um, <laughs> I have thrilled about one success this year, which is now three years running, we've had it from the same plant. You mentioned earlier on that um, on your allotment, you had geranium. Madarensi. Madarensi. Well, we can't really grow Madarensi successfully in this garden, but I've got a white flowered version of Madarensi, which is just outside this window here um, by a garden seat. <laughs> yes, exactly, with a little red eye. <laughs> and, Guernsey I mean, White. Oh, yes, Guernsey White, that's the one. Um, <laughs> now you know where the seed came from. <laughs> Um, and this I was is... about to ask you if you wanted any, but you clearly don't need any. So, but... <laughs> no, but I'll have something else to put your thinking cap on. <laughs> I will. <laughs> but we are very lucky here because Madarensi, I don't think we had any real frost here, although um, it did snow. But, I mean, as you know, Madarensi can't cope with anything below... Yeah. Um, below freezing it's uh, um mm. and ours looked like something off doctor who you know they they when when they get too cold the their arms go down and they they often like make it through the, a, a few months and then they will rot later because basically the frost has destroyed all the, the the tissue and so they sort of die this slow and painful death but we very fortunately because I've got I mean in, in the small space I've got I must have 20 or so plants and half of them survived and the other half didn't so we're just getting I bought in a leaf because I, I um this this is what I just literally just before you sent the uh, link I, I thought oh people might like to just see how um you know how big these leaves can and this is not a big madarensi leaf because i lost all, all the big leaves went um in the cold but this is one that they've sort of kicked out um since but 
they are most amazing. I mean, even if you never get them to flower, um, they're worth it for the foliage, aren't they? Yeah. Really amazing things. The only thing, Alan, I don't know if you've noticed, have you ever, have you ever sniffed one? No. <laughs> it may be, I mean, damp laundry <laughs> is, is kind. Um, it, I would, um, I would save, I would save yourself for something else. They don't, they don't smell nice, do they? And they're a little bit sticky, but um, oh, yeah. Yeah, things of great beauty, if you can, um, if you can grow them. And, and we mentioned quite a way back early on in this podcast about the fact that you garden mostly in pots, which is extraordinary. You must get through an awful lot of food and water and hours of looking after them. Yes, I mean it's it's not an easy it's not an easy choice. So I mean, when people come to visit the garden, they they get very inspired. I think because it, it's a small sort of relatable space, but you know it's not a not a choice so much as a necessity here because the bigger garden uh, has cellars underneath it, so it's completely hollow underneath. It has big vaults. Allegedly, um, there are tunnels down there that, that go down to the beach because it was a, a smuggler's house uh, originally. I've never found any evidence of this, but everybody knows in uh, Broadstairs that there are tunnels um, from the cellars to the beach. So I don't, I, I don't have any soils. So I don't have the, the opportunity. The only place I have a tiny bit is, is just outside these doors here. And... I tried to plant a um, miscanthus last weekend and a, and a clematis, and you know clematis need to, to be buried quite sort of deeply. And um, you know, six inches down, I am you know needing to use a pickaxe to get through solid chalk. So there, it's um, I, I suppose putting them in pots is a kindness to the plants because otherwise they've just got to deal with solid rock. But you, you know, you, it is incredible what you can grow in a pot. That that is um, one thing I would say. Whether it's the best way to grow it or not is another thing. But if you've got no choice, then it's um, then it's good. And I so I've got my last thingy to show you, which um, I was sort of conversing with an orchid expert about the other day. But you know, these don't. I don't think these really belong in a pot unless unless they're at sort of Wisley in the Alpine house or something. But, um, you know, I've, I've been reasonably successful with these Cypripediums. I've, I've sort of got about 10 different ones now. And and actually, if you, providing you look after them okay, they, they will exist quite nicely um, in a pot. And, and of course, for, for a brief spell of time, you can bring them in and enjoy them for a couple of days. I don't think, you know, Cypripediums like cool, so they wouldn't like to be indoors very much. But, um, but yeah, so you, you, you can grow things. And I suppose the other, the other joy of growing in pots is, of course, you can plant them to suit them. Where, so I can grow things next to each other that, that no one else could if they were growing it in their garden, because you can have something in ericaceous compost and something that's that's uh, that likes alkaline soil next to each other but um yeah it's uh, it's a different way of gardening not not the easiest way of gardening <laughs> probably. 
but certainly inspiring because I don't think there's a garden living who hasn't been at a nursery or a garden centre and uh, and when asked where are you going to plant that has said I don't know but I'll definitely be able to put it in a pot so <laughs> it's inspiring for us all now we're going to run out of time so I suppose we best squeeze in some flomo before we wrap up this episode of Talking Dirty and um, my flomo comes from it must be weeks or months back on your Instagram you posted this amazing photo I think I've written it down so I don't get it wrong uh Empathian's pink nerves oh yes which yes. just looked fabulous and I loved your description I'm quite often taken in by the descriptions that people put um alongside plants you said emerges from its pot in glorious technicolor and if there's one thing I'm after in my life it is glorious technicolor so um <laughs> I uh, I was quite taken by that um tell me more about it because I don't really have many Empathians we've come up on previous podcasts but yeah it looked very enticing well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because my friend Andrew, who is a, a much better gardener than I am, um, messaged me to say, don't tell people to plant that thing because it spreads everywhere and you'll never get rid of it. But of course, when you, when you grow things in a pot, you don't realise this because they are contained. But it's, um, there are a lot of impatience that are pretty hardy, actually. I think, I think that is hardy if you if you grow it sort of somewhere sheltered in nice sort of woodsy soil it's probably fine i i just take them in to, to you know to keep them out of the way in the winter but there are there are several there's omiana as well i think which um which is quite hardy i've got arguta as well which i literally just snapped bits off last summer and planted them in the ground and i thought well they'll die in the winter and I go back to the mother plant and yet they they're sprouting up all over the place so beneath, um beneath the soil mm. yeah huge tubers yeah yeah well tinctoria is the I mean honestly the size of those tubers they're they're crazy aren't they but um <laughs> yeah so it, it's lovely but I I would I would I would think of it like you would planting mint, if my friend Andrew is correct, <laughs> and make sure that it has some boundaries. Well noted. Um, what I love with FOMO on this podcast, which is obviously this kind of plant-based FOMO, the plant you want to grow, when we were sort of sending messages back and forth before this podcast, I very much got the feeling from you that you were inundated constantly with things you wanted to grow being the frustrated gardener with your sort of um smaller smaller space smaller garden so i'm gonna allow you two if you want them because i feel like that's fair <laughs> but what would you bring as flomo to the podcast well i like things that are a little bit on the edge um so my first one is an oliaria which is called henry travers and I saw this in um, one of those sort of blessed gardens in, um, in Cornwall. It was a National Garden Scheme garden, actually, growing as a tree. And it's the most extraordinary thing. Apparently, it's quite tricky to grow, but I, I don't mind that. But it's, it's, I just remember having this vision of this sort of daisy tree dripping with these beautiful mauve daisies and just thinking, I've, you, know, you know, whoever invented that... <laughs> Had, uh, had great imagination because I, I'd never seen anything like it. It was it's beautiful. It's it's definitely a coastal plant. I think it likes to be 
Um, it likes the coastal environment. And I think it's probably quite tricky to get going and tricky to propagate. But um, there are people that have got it. I just don't really have the right spot to, to do it justice. So that, that's my number one. And then number two, I'm afraid, has similarities. It's another another borderline thing, which is leucodendron argentium, which is um, sadly very endangered in its um, in its South African home. But if, if you've ever been to Tresco, which I'm sure Alan must have been to Tresco. Um, never. You, never. Oh, yeah. you, but when you arrive by, um, when you arrive by helicopter, you're greeted by this row of these trees, which sort of sparkle like someone's fashioned them out of platinum or something. And um, it, it, it's just the most beautiful tree when it looks happy, um, mm. which of course it does on Tresco and probably doesn't anywhere else <laughs> other than, than in Cape Town. But um, that, is another, that is another plant I would love to grow. There's some pretty amazing Flomos. Well done, Dan. Have you got anything to bring, bring to the table, Alan? Yeah, well, I what Dan was talking about, Henry Travers there, the early area for Henry Travers. I remember seeing that um, at uh, in Beru in Scotland. I mean, with, which has that marvelous uh, climate warm by the Gulf Stream, so they can grow it there. I have had it. Unfortunately, I have too lost it, and I don't think that I really have the right place for it. But hey, you know, why why not? I mean, why not try again? My flomo for this week it comes from the fact that. Um, I had a, a dianthus, which I thought I'd lost. I actually owe Richard Hobbs an apology because I begged some cuttings and a plant from him, which he kindly gave me. And uh, I think it was on Sunday, I found the original mother plant here in the greenhouse, which I thought I'd lost. I actually thought somebody would thrown it away and I was bearing a grudge because I thought they'd thrown it away. So <laughs> apologies <as> well. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's a dianthus called uh, Chumley Farin. And it's one of the old bizarre varieties. There used to be masses of them in the Victorian period. And they have small carnation like double flowers. And the petals are split um, in, in different colorways. Mine is um, kind of magentary mauve and, and red. And it's, uh, it is what it says. It's bizarre. Um, but it's not that that I want to grow because I've grown that. But I would like to grow Malmaison carnations. Um, I don't know whether you know them, but these are the old French carnations, which are so beautifully scented and they they can almost grow like trees. You put trellis in the pot, you know, a wigwam of canes in the pots and train them to them and everything else. Not the tidiest plants, I have to say, but for the nostalgic display uh, of having something like that in some of one of my greenhouses so that visitors can enjoy the scent more than anything else. We grow a rose called Colombian climber in one of the greenhouses and the scent because of the enclosed space you go in it, even with the doors open in the summer the scent hits you. Um, another reason people like Brugmantis in the evening the scent hits you. They say that if you go to sleep underneath a Brugmantia you never wake up. My answer to that is what a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh well i think this flomo might have outdone any other flomos on any other podcasts and um, dan it's been such a treat thank you very much for joining us what an extravaganza of plants well, i think the pleasure has been all mine actually thank you very much for having me will you come back another season another time and share some other things oh yes get, get me back in the summer when all the gingers are out we will. It's Aye. a promise. <laughs> it's a date, Dan. <laughs> Before you go, I'd just like to 
Can I just say one thing? One little thing. Um, I've been busy all day and I'm busy this afternoon, but before I go and be busy again, uh, thanks to Dan, I'm going off to sniff a Madarensi. <laughs> Don't go to sleep under it, though, Alan. <laughs> Well, have a lovely day being busy, everybody, and happy gardening. Happy gardening. All the best. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.